Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Morning. So I'm going to be reading from Acts 1, verse 12 to 26. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphysus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He was one of the number and was shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Jesus brought a field. He then fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Alcadema, that is, a field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may he place, may this place be deserted, let there be no one who dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time this Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken from us. For one of these must become a witness with us for his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two men you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas has left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Messiah, so he was added to the 11 apostles. All right, good morning. Thank you, Isadora, for uh, reading for us and making your way through all of those fun names. Brilliant. Um, It's fantastic to be with you, and it really is my privilege to be able to speak uh, this morning. And if you're new and you're visiting, you are so welcome. We love love having people join us. My name is uh, Keegan. I'm married to Hannah, and we have a young son by the name of Benjamin who's two. And we, as parents, are incredibly blessed by the people who every Sunday put on their yellow T-shirts and go and serve in our creche ministry. So if you haven't yet signed up, please sign up now. You'll, uh, you'll be a big blessing to, to me and Hannah and Benjamin. So we're in the middle of this series, as Andy mentioned, on the book of Acts, um, where we're looking at the early church, this first century church that started after Jesus' death and resurrection. And you may have heard of a historian by the name of Tom Holland. He's written about the Roman Empire and the Persian Empire and about Islam and also about Christianity. And he describes this early church as the primary explosion of Christianity, 
a movement which he says goes on to shape and transform almost everything uh, in the world that we know it. He describes it as revolutionary. And so we're in this series, and I want us this morning to look at this primary explosion and to zoom in to some of the characters and the people and the names who were chosen and used by God to lead this movement of the early church. So that's what we're going to be doing. And um, really, we're going to be looking at Jesus and his apostles or the 12 disciples. And I just want to clarify right up front, I'm going to talk about apostles quite a lot this morning. And what I mean is those who are chosen by Jesus, who are witness to his risen or him as in his risen form, and who have gone on to write and author the Bible. And so I'm not talking about, for example, Guy Miller, um, who we would regard as an apostolic individual in our church community. And believe it or not, he hasn't seen the risen Jesus. So um, next time you can let him know that that hasn't actually happened. But we do love his input as, a, as a, an individual into our church. And we, we love the fact that he is, has the space to speak into and to guide and to, to, to talk to our church, but coming through the elders. And so we're going to really just look at these capital A apostles, as they're sometimes called. So we started off our story and we picked up um, kind of in an unusual space. You see, the church has gotten off to to quite an odd start. What has happened? Well, Jesus, the kind of captain of the whole thing, has left. He's ascended up to heaven. He's told the disciples to go and to wait in Jerusalem until the power from on high, the Holy Spirit, will come upon them. And then what else has happened? Another one of their leaders, Judas, has betrayed Jesus and has died. Not the kind of start you want to really be getting off to, right, when you're going to launch this transformative movement uh, called Christianity. And so we pick up the story where we've got the 11 apostles and a few of the others who they've collected along the way, holed up in this room, praying, waiting for God to come upon them, waiting for the Holy Spirit to move. I don't know, but I wonder what was going on in their minds and their hearts at that point. There was probably the sense of confusion, a sense of fear, maybe some anxiety, some nervous excitement for something that was about to happen, but they don't know what. And it's out of this prayerful place, and I'm taking a bit of poetic license here, that I think Peter's mind probably starts to drift as they're all there together, praying, wondering what God is going to do. Maybe his mind goes back to some earlier conversations he's had with Jesus where Jesus has said to Peter and, and the disciples that as there were 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, there will be 12 new apostles, and they will be the foundation of this new church. And maybe then he starts counting, how many people are there in the room? And he does some maths, and he suddenly realizes there's about 120 people here. And there's only 11 leaders, and we've lost Judas. And Judas' name, actually, if you look at its root origin, means roughly 10 Israelites. And so the maths begins to not add up. He realizes they're a leader short. They're meant to have 12, and they're down to 11. And then it clicks. He goes to Psalm 69, verse 10, where it says, May another take his office, referring to people who have been Wicked against David, who we know is a picture of Jesus to come. And suddenly it dawns on Peter, we need to replace Judas. We need the 12. The 12 was God's plan. And so I wonder what happens next. You know, we will 
go into some of the details, but if I think about it now, if I needed to replace someone at the, at, at the head of a movement, I'd probably think about maybe we need to start with a job description, right? What are we actually getting this person to do? Which is not what happens, but if it were to be written, I think it would go something like this. We need someone who's open to the empowering of the Spirit. Someone who will be a witness to the risen Jesus. Someone who can boldly preach God's word. And at times, you also need to do it in languages that you can't speak by the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to be devoted to prayer. You need to be able to write some letters with divine inspiration and only best-selling books allowed, please, nothing else. You need to heal the sick and cast out the demons, bring freedom and joy to people, sometimes doing it only by your handkerchief. You need to be able to defend the gospel publicly before the courts and rulers. You need to endure much suffering and persecution and potentially even an undue death and please do it all with joy and with forgiveness in your heart. You might need to travel frequently, potentially moving countries every couple of months. And please also be the foundation of this movement called Christianity which is going to go on to transform the lives of thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions and billions of people over the next 2,000 years. It was an easy gig, right? That was the calling of these individuals who are going to lead this movement of Christianity. Now, what's kind of interesting, I mean, Peter obviously doesn't know that all of this is going to unfold exactly in this way. He will have seen some of it with, with, in his time with Jesus. Um, and so he goes with some pretty kind of pithy eligibility criteria, really. He says, if we're going to find someone to replace him, we need someone who's been with us as the rest of the disciples from the time Jesus was baptized and all the way through to his death and his resurrection and who was with us when Jesus ascended. So someone who was with us when Jesus was coming and going, and that's it. That's all we need. I presume there were a number of people who met that criteria. That's what he says, is that that's it. No education, no particular qualification, no skills needed, public speaking, it doesn't matter, don't worry, God will empower you to do what you need. Personality traits, do you need to be friendly, unfriendly? Nothing else mattered. Just, you have to have been with us and seen Jesus. And we then get into how they actually then appoint this individual, which is almost equally bizarre. So they identify two people who meet these criteria. We read about Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice. He has three names. I'm not sure why, but there you go. And then someone else called Matthias. And so it comes down to these two people who we know will have met the eligibility criteria. And at this point, they turn the matter over to God. And they say, we're going to cast lots, which is kind of the olden day equivalent of the flip of a coin, right? God, it's up to you. We don't really want to make this decision. And so who's it going to be? Joseph, heads, Matthias, tails. Now I've been practicing. I hope I don't drop the coin. And there they go. And imagine the moment when the lots are being cast. Who's it going to be? Joseph, Matthias, Joseph, Matthias. And the lot falls on Matthias. 
Amazing. And he gets thrust into this position of apostleship, leading this church that's going to be this amazing, transformative, revolutionary movement for the rest of our life here on earth. What an amazing journey, the journey of a lifetime. And we read that the gospel begins to go out, and it goes out to Judea and Samaria, and beyond that to Antioch and to Cyprus and to Caesarea and to Athens and to Thessalonica and to Ephesus and to Caesarea, Rome, and to all the ends of the earth from that moment. What an amazing privilege. What an amazing call, Matthias. Now for... The rest of my message, what I want to do is I want to go and just dig a bit deeper into these two characters. Because something went wrong with Judas, right? So I want to start by looking a bit at Judas, and then I want to look a bit at Matthias. What do we know about these two, and what can we learn about the way God has decided to do church? So who was Judas? A bit of background. Um, You might be confused. There are actually two Judases among the 12 disciples that Jesus originally chooses. And this one we're talking about is Judas Iscariot. And he's often kind of, there's always a suffix uh, in the Bible where it says Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. Just so that you know and don't get confused between the two. So that's your top tip for your next Bible quiz. Um, There were two of them called Judas. And we also know that Judas was in charge of the disciples' money bag. So whenever they went around, people would have given them donations and collections, and Judas was in charge. And he wasn't just in charge, he was also pinching from the money bag. We read of this one occasion where a lady by the name of Mary wants to kind of dedicate all this ointment to Jesus and honoring him, and it would have been equivalent to about a year's worth of wages. And and Judas throws up his hands and says, no, 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 how can you do that? We need to give this money to the poor. Don't possibly spill all this ointment for Jesus. And it was not because he really cared about the poor, but because he wanted to take his cut out of the money bag. And we then read this very quite chilling account of what happens with Judas when he, under the influence of evil, betrays Jesus. So in John chapter 13, we read this. It says, during supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. The devil had put it into Judas' heart. And later on we read that then Jesus becomes troubled in his spirit over dinner and testifies and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples look around. You can imagine the awkwardness in that moment. Kind of look around and... One of his disciples whom he loved, Judas, was reclining at the table next to Jesus. And Simon Peter nudges Judas and says, Judas, why don't you ask him? You know, find out who it is. Who's he talking about? And so Judas leans back and asks Jesus, who kind of whispers, Jesus, who, who is it? Who, who is it who's going to betray you? And what does Jesus say? said, it is the one to whom I give this morsel of bread after I have dipped it, who will betray me. And Jesus then gives this morsel of bread to Judas. And it says that after he had taken the morsel, Satan enters him. And Jesus says to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. And we know from the rest of the story that Judas then gets up and goes out from dinner he goes to the chief priests and this mob that are looking for, Judas to, uh, for Jesus to kill him. 
and he guides them to Jesus, betraying him for 30 pieces of silver. Chilling account of Judas. Now that's what we know about him, but I think what's interesting to consider, because we're in the story of the book of Acts, learning about the new church, is why does Luke, who's written the book of Acts, put this account of Judas' death in the passage? Surely it wasn't necessary. I mean, he could have just said, Judas died and we need to find Matthias and we move on. But he goes into great detail to describe how Judas dies, right? And we read about his intestines being spilt out and this gory description of Judas' death. And I think there are a few reasons and I think it's important that we pause to consider them. I think the first is that Luke is wanting to make a statement, this sign to show everybody what is going to happen to those who oppose God. Right at the beginning, up front, before the church goes on. You see, we, we, we read from the story that Judas, or not, not from the story, but another account that Judas actually hangs himself. And so what probably happens is Judas goes to this field which has been bought with his blood money, this 30 pieces of silver that he's gotten from betraying Jesus, and probably hangs himself in this field. And I've done some reading and the medical process of the decay of the body, and it's pretty gory, but bear with me for a second. Judas's body would probably then begin to decay and begin to swell up as the enzymes in his cells begin to decompose his body. And perhaps at some point people thought, we've got to get this guy down or the rope gives way and he falls down onto the ground, his body swollen and bloated and at that point bursts open and his guts and his intestines spill out on this field. I don't know if you've ever been walking in a forest, maybe you're out in the wild and something's died and you catch a whiff of the stench of that dead animal on the wind. That would have been what happened to Judas. That all of Jerusalem starts to know about this field, this field of blood called Akaldama, the stench of Judas's death in this field. Now, someone had suggested when I was talking about this message that I should have brought a, you know, pop past a butcher and brought a, a bag of entrails just to really kind of bring this to life. But um, I'm sure you'll be glad to know that my, uh, my laziness has prevailed. So you'll be spared of that. But I think it's a pretty gory picture because it is a sign of the humiliation and the defeat, ultimately that will come to Satan himself, but that will also come to those who oppose God. And so there's a serious warning in this, I think, um, also for us as the church. There are a few commentators, um, Andrew Wilson and a couple of others, who particularly point out some of the connections between the way that Luke describes this death of Judas and a few other parallels that we've got in the Bible. The first is Luke describes Judas's kind of uh, this, the purchase of this land as the reward of Judas's wickedness or the wages for his wickedness. Now that Greek phrase is only used once elsewhere in the New Testament, where it describes. Balaam's wrongdoing, and Balaam was um, an individual from the Old Testament, um, a sort of diviner, and he is uh, approached by an evil king of Moab called Balak, and Balak goes to Balaam and says to Balaam, 
come with us and come and curse the people of God, curse the Israelites, go against what God is doing, and I will give you these reward and all these riches. And he initially doesn't do it, and, and uh, Balak then ups the, the, the ante and gives him more riches, and eventually Balaam succumbs. And it's described as, again, the fact that he sells his soul for this material gain. So I think Luke is drawing this parallel between these Old Testament characters that we've got who have been totally persuaded, who've done the wrong thing out of greed um, and have gone against God. Similarly, there's another parallel with an individual called Ahab. Now, Ahab was a morally corrupt king of Israel in the Old Testament, and him and his wife Jezebel were quite well known for their greed and the fact that they have been consumed by a lust for possessions. And there's a story of King Ahab, he goes to this guy called Naboth, and he says to Naboth, Naboth, I want your land that you've got. Here, I'll buy it from you. I'll give you lots of money for it. And Naboth says, no, 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 I can't give you the land. That land's been part of my inheritance. It's in my family line. I, I just can't, can't do it, no matter how much you give me. And so Ahab throws this infantile tantrum and gets completely upset about the fact that he can't get this land that he so desperately wants. And his evil and wicked wife, Jezebel, comes up with this idea and this plot to go against uh, Naboth and to basically set him up and have him falsely accused of blasphemy. And ultimately, Naboth gets stoned and dies. And coming out of that, Ahab is able to get this piece of land. And so we see in this, this parallel, right? This plot of land, the fact that Ahab has, again, kind of betrays Naboth, innocent man, to get this land and this kind of motivation of greed that is causing people to do evil and wicked things. And the Old Testament said that Ahab sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So friends, I think there's this warning about what happens in our hearts with money, how that causes destruction in our lives. And as we go on in our series on the book of Acts, I think this picture will become even clearer because we will read of some other characters. We will read of this couple called Ananias and Sapphira. And in the early church, what begins to happen when the Holy Spirit comes on them, it's not only people's spiritual state that's transformed, their relationships with their wallets are transformed. And they start selling their possessions and they start redistributing wealth to make sure that nobody in their community is in need. And Ananias and Sapphira see this, and I think probably out of a sense of duty and obligation or because they're trying to kind of do the right thing, decide to sell a piece of land, but they don't give all the money over. You see, they hold some back. And what happens to them? Well, Peter accuses them, accuses Ananias, and he says this, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. You have not lied to man, but to God. So we see again the forces of evil working through the greed of Ananias and Sapphira. And Ananias drops down dead at that moment. And his wife comes in and she again suffers the same uh, fate as her husband. And so we see that there is this incompatibility between greed and the church. The movement of God does not play well with greed. And there are other stories like Simon the Sorcerer. And um, 
Again, Simon the sorcerer meets some of the apostles and they're doing these amazing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says to them, I, I want that power. Can I give you money for that? Please, how much do I need to pay you to get the power of the Holy Spirit? Now we probably know that what he wants to do is when he gets that power, he knows that he can use that power and then charge people for the things that he can do and make more money. And again, we see a similar accusation of Peter against them, against Simon. He says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this ministry. The same language that is used to describe Judas as having a lot or a part in the ministry. For your heart is not right before God. And Paul puts it slightly differently and very sharply in his letter to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 6 verses 9 and 10 say this, that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now this has got nothing to do with how much money you have in your bank account or how wealthy you are. It's not about the amount of money, it's about our relationship with money. It's the love of money. It's this desire to be rich. And so whether you are poor or whether you are filthy rich, it doesn't matter. What is the state of your heart toward money? And I think it's important that we pause and reflect. Do I desire to be rich? Do I love money? Am I craving it? I just can't wait for those money to land in my account. I'm trying to find ways to make a little bit more money. If I can just get more money, then everything will come together. My life will be sorted out if I can just get that little bit extra. Is that what's going on in our hearts? And I think we would be silly living in a city like London to think that we are not influenced in some way, shape, or form by a world which loves money, by a city which loves money, one of the biggest financial centers in the world. And I think it's actually totally appropriate if we were to respond today with a little bit of fear and reverence before God. We read in the early church that great fear and reverence for the holiness and purity of God falls on them after they see what happens to Ananias and Sapphira. And so I think we as a church need to just examine ourselves a little bit. But I must say that I don't want us to live in fear and not to think that there isn't hope because there is hope and the hope is in God. And we will see this in Matthias. But I want to quickly just quote one verse from the book of James, which says this. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Let me read that again. Submit yourselves therefore to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Glad I've got some amens. (laughs) But church, this is the reality, right? The power of the devil working through Judas is no match. The power of the devil working through Ananias and Sapphira is no match for the Holy Spirit, okay? The power of God will bring freedom to us in every part of our lives, including this. But we do need to bow the knee and say, God, we submit to you. We submit to you. We will resist the devil and he will flee. Now, I think the third reason that Luke puts this bit on Judas' death in is because it provides the backdrop for Matthias' appointment. And what do I mean? Well, it's really what I've sort of just begun to talk about, the fact that there is no power of hell and no scheme of man that is going to stop God building his church. Anything could have happened. Judas goes astray. He goes wandering. He gets you know, taken over by this power of evil. The devil gets involved. But is it any match for God and his plans for the church? No. Because what the devil working through Judas meant for evil, God turns for good. And how does he do it? Well, he does it by appointing this humble, lesser-known man called Matthias and praised God for Matthias. So who was he and what do we know? Well, the answer is we know very little about him, actually. Across all the 8,000 verses in the New Testament, our friend Matthias gets mentioned in two. That's it. That's all we get. We know that he would have been with Jesus when Jesus was baptized. He would have been with the disciples. He would have known him. He would have sat under some of Jesus' teaching. But it's probably fair to say that when it comes to choosing a replacement, our friend Matthias was not the most obvious candidate, right? Some commentators point out the way that uh, Joseph gets mentioned first, and he's got lots of names. Joseph, you know, also known as Barsabbas, also known as Justice, this kind of three names, this grandeur to him, mentioned first, and then all you get afterwards is Matthias. And who does God choose? Lesser known Matthias. And why? Why does he choose him? Well, in Acts, the the scripture that we read in verse 24, it says that before they cast the lots, they pray and they say, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen. And when that lot falls on Matthias, it reveals something of his inner substance his inner heart, this heart that is faithful, that is humble, that is submitted and turned toward God. And I believe that's why Matthias is chosen. And you see, we we don't get much else on him, and I've done a lot of digging to try and figure out what else can we learn about Matthias from extra-biblical evidence, and unfortunately the stories are quite mixed and contradictory, There's varying accounts of his life and his death. According to some legends, he preached for a time in Jerusalem before being stoned and beheaded. Other legends claim that he preached the gospel to barbarians and cannibals in interior Ethiopia and was then crucified. But really, we don't know. We don't actually know what happens to Matthias. We know he was appointed. We know his heart was right before God. 
And we can probably safely deduce that he was with the apostles when they began to build this early church, where the apostles are referred to uh, as a group at numerous points in Acts. And so he would have received the power of the Holy Spirit. He would have been used by God to carry out many signs and wonders, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to bring freedom to people's lives. Oh, and he would have also been the foundation of this movement called Christianity that would go on to change billions of people's lives. And so what Judas misses, Matthias inherits. What Judas misses, Matthias inherits. And I believe that was not only the joy of being part of that early church and seeing the radical and miraculous things that God did through them, but I believe that he will be honored for eternity for the role that he has played. In Revelation 21, we read about what's coming, this new heaven and this new earth that will come at the end or kind of in the fullness of time. And we read of this new city of Jerusalem where God will dwell with his people and the city will have the glory of God and a radiance like the most precious jewels and surrounding the city will be a wall. And that wall will have 12 foundation stones and in those foundation stones, or on those foundation stones will be named the 12 apostles. And so friends, I believe that Matthias' name will be there forever, honored for eternity, honored as one of these foundation stones in the church of God. So lesser known Matthias in the fullness of time will be rightly heralded for his heart before God. This humble, faithful servant He may not have done great things. We don't know anything about them if he did. But we know that he was faithful in heart. I'm going to bring us to a close. Maybe if we can have the band up. Um, So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with Matthias and these stories of Judas? Well, I've said already, I think with Judas, there is a need for us to repent, to examine our hearts and our relationship with money. But what about Matthias? I think as a church, we would do so well to make much of the Matthias heart. To make much of the Matthias heart. You see, we live in a world which praises external achievement, doesn't it? We make much of prime ministers and presidents, kings and queens, CEOs, the wealthiest in the world. And we have lists for all of these people, don't we? The most hundred influential people in the world. The Sunday Times' rich list. Forbes is most powerful people. But where is the list of the most kind, of the most loving, of the most reliable, of the most humble, of the most servant-hearted, the most loyal, and the most faithful? Where are those lists? I think they're few and far between, and where they do exist, we probably don't really know much about them. And I think in Westminster Chapel, we're at at a peculiar risk of this, to be honest. We have this phenomenal history of God using amazing preachers, people like Samuel Martin and Martin Lloyd-Jones and R.T. Kendall. And God has used them in mighty ways, and we praise God for that. But what about all the in-between people? The people we don't hear so much about. Henry Simon, who led this church for 11 years. Evans Herndl, who led this church for nine years. 
Richard Westrope, who led this church for six years. What about all these other people? Now, I don't know all of their stories, but I presume in the mix there, there are some who have been faithful to God, who have sacrificed years of their lives for the goodness of this church community. I think we would do well to remember some of those people. And of course, let's not forget their families, the deacons who have served around them, those who have run ministries in this church to the poor, people who faithfully prayed for this church, countless many lesser-known faces who've served us in our kitchen. What about all of them? Should we not make much of them and their hearts, the Matthias hearts that have made this church what it is today, that have kept it going for generation through generation through generation? We will do well, church, to make much of the Matthias heart, to not look at the external achievement, but to look at the inner substance, to look at what God is doing inside someone's heart. And finally, I think we need to take great courage from this. Um, and why don't we stand? We'll go into worship after this. But my final encouragement is that um, I've sort of said it already. But my final encouragement is that God is building his church. Friends, God is building his church. No power of hell, no scheme of man will stop God from building his church. The power of the devil and his evil plans are no match and they will not prevail. And why? You see, there's one very big difference between the death of Judas and the death of Jesus. Judas stayed dead. Jesus didn't. Jesus rose again. The power of death, the pangs of death had no hold on him. And that's who we come to worship today. That's who I want to encourage us to put our faith and our confidence and our trust in, to submit our knee to Jesus Christ who died and has risen again and has ascended up into heaven. He is the one that we will praise and we will worship, that we will put our faith and our trust in. The one who is faithful and the God who is building an unstoppable church. Let's go into worship. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.